0: You know, you scroll through Instagram, you see these beautiful photos, but you're not really seeing what it's actually like to live in these tiny houses. Of course, there are hundreds and thousands of positive stories of people living in these tiny houses and going super well. But I also found that there's some side of the movement that many people don't know about or don't even talk about.
1: Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 143 with Frank Alito. If you've been following the tiny house movement for any amount of time, there's a good chance you've come across a story about someone getting ripped off by their tiny house builder. Heck, I've even interviewed several people on this show whose builders have gone bankrupt or not delivered on what they promised. This week, I'm interviewing Frank Alito, the resident tiny house expert at Business Insider. Frank has also noticed this trend in the industry and has focused his reporting on it. Stick around to learn about what happens when you work with a bad builder, what recourse you can take, and how to avoid bad builders in the first place. Before we get started, I'd like to wish you a happy new year. Whether you've been listening to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast since the beginning, or you just found the show, I really appreciate that you're here. If you're listening on thetinyhouse.net and want to get the new episode each week, download a podcast app like Overcast or CastBox and search for Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast and hit subscribe. You can also find the show in Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your questions, emails, and feedback keep the show fresh. And as long as you keep listening, I'll keep making it. Happy 2021. All right, I am here with Frank Olito. Frank is Insider and Business Insider's Tiny House Expert. He reports mainly on alternative living, focusing on tiny houses, RVs, van life, and schoolies. As Insider's resident tiny house expert, he has stayed in several tiny houses, attended a tiny house convention, interviewed countless tiny house owners, and chatted with numerous tiny house builders. Frank Olito, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Excited to be here. Yeah. 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 Likewise. So, um, I was curious how you... Came to the tiny house movement as a reporter. Was it? Were they kind of like, "Hey, Frank, you're, this is your beat now," or were, was this something that you kind of hitched to them and said, "This is something I'm interested in"?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I would say about two years ago, uh, tiny houses really wasn't on my radar. Like, I maybe saw a few posts on Instagram on social media here and there, but it wasn't really on my radar. And I was hired at Insider as a generalist reporter. So just covering anything and everything, a catch-all position, basically. And I noticed that the stories that we were producing around tiny houses, because other people were reporting on and out of the company, was performing super well. Those were really super uh, great performers on the site. And readers were just eating up those stories. But we were just doing tiny house stories here and there. And I was like, hey, guys, I think this is an area that we can really expand our coverage on. I feel like there's a lot of this movement that we can still cover much more expansively. And I started doing that very slowly. But around probably a year ago, I started to pitch a story to stay and visit a tiny house community down in Orlando, Florida. And I stayed there for three or four nights. And I stayed in a tiny house that was on Airbnb in that community. And I stayed there during while I was staying there. I really just fell in love with the lifestyle. I was like, wow, this is a lifestyle that people can actually do full time. And I found it fascinating. And while I was there, I also got to speak to all of these tiny house owners that were living in the community. And from them, I really understood what this lifestyle really entailed. And I also got the chance to tour their tiny houses. So like, remember, this is my first time really experienced the tiny house lifestyle Mm -hmm. movement in a first person way. And when I returned from that trip from Orlando and I started writing these stories from that trip, they really blew up on our website. And for lack of a better term, they went viral. Millions and millions of people were interested in these stories. And that's really where it all began.
1: Wow. Yeah, and that's like I found the same thing, you know, before I even built my own tiny house. I was I was doing a different business online and I was I was kind of it was called Cloud Coach. I was doing tech consulting. And I noticed as soon as I started writing about my tiny house, it was just like it felt like I was swimming upstream writing about tech and then as soon as I started talking about tiny houses, it was like Riding with the current,
0: like surfing downstream. Exactly. I have the same experience. I would say before that, you know, the things I was writing at Insider and Business Insider were much more general. And it was a struggle to get eyes on the stories I was writing. And then as soon as I shifted my focus, you know, just bunches of people just came and read these stories because it's just fascinating to people who are both inside the movement and also outside of the movement looking in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes coverage of the tiny house movement that's kind of written from the outside can be, you know, either clickbaity or, or overly critical, kind of like, you know, the hidden downsides of tiny house living or, or like, you know, I wonder, you know, how you approached finding
0: stories in, in the movement. Yeah, I would definitely say that I know those stories. I also have written those stories of like the disappointing photos of tiny houses and I try and find the stories that show the human side of tiny houses. You know, these are actual people living their lives in these structures. I think we can easily get swept away in the tiny house hashtag on Instagram and just see hundreds and thousands of photos of these beautiful photos of these beautiful tiny homes and forget that these are actual people living in them. And so what I try and do is I try and scour social media, look through Instagram, look at what other outlets are covering with tiny houses and find the people that actually have a story to tell. The deeper you go, you realize that you know these, there are families, full families, people of five living in a tiny house. You realize that there are retirees living in tiny houses. There are couples that are living on top of each other full time in these tiny houses. So when I'm looking for a story, I try and find that human angle. It's not just, hey, look at this beautiful home. It's, hey, look at this beautiful home and see who's living inside of it.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great way to approach it. And there are so many different kinds of people living in tiny houses. One thing that always surprised me was, you know, when I when I started on my build, I was, you know, 26. and I thought that it was going to just be all millennials. And it turns out that it it really spans all ages. And and I would say that I'm seeing it skew more toward the baby boomer generation who are actually building tiny houses and then staying in them forever, whereas the millennials like me are building them. And then after a few years, it's kind of like, okay, well, on to the next thing. Um, Have you found that as well?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I speak to I've spoken to a lot of tiny house owners that are retired and this is their retirement home, you know there's a growing movement of people not moving into 50-year-old-plus uh, communities, but they're actually moving into tiny homes because it's a different way to live out their retirement. And then at the same time, I'm seeing younger people, millennials, move into tiny, house, tiny houses as a financial movement. You know, It's a way to own a piece of property at a young age at not a huge price tag. So I think the tiny house movement and tiny houses specifically are an answer it's a different answer to many different people but at the end of the day it's just a different way to live no matter who's in it and why they chose to do it
1: so when you contacted me something kind of specific that you mentioned that we could talk about was bad builders for lack of a a better term or people who are having issues with their tiny house builders. Um, can you can you talk about what, what you've been finding in that arena?
0: Yeah. So during my time of reporting on the tiny house movement, like I said earlier, you know, you scroll through Instagram, you see these beautiful photos, but you're not really seeing the other side of the movement, what it's actually like to live in these tiny houses. Of course, there are hundreds and thousands of positive stories of people Living in these tiny houses and it going super well. But I also found that there's a pattern in this movement, that there is some side of the movement that many people don't know about or don't even talk about. And the main thing that I saw is that tiny house owners are getting screwed over by their builders. You know, I would tour tiny houses. And the owners would be like, oh, yeah, that those those floorboards that are coming up, the builder messed it up. Oh, you see this? The builder did X, Y and Z wrong. Oh, you see this? The builder did ABC wrong. And I started to see this happening on and on and over and just over and over again. And then I started asking people, like, is this an issue that's happening in the movement? Do you see this constantly? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is just something we're dealing with because we are such a new movement. This is something that we are dealing with. And At first, it was quite, it was a little heartbreaking for me because people who move into tiny houses, you know, they are sometimes moving out of their hometowns. They are sometimes quitting their jobs to move in their tiny house. They are downsizing significantly. They are completely changing their lives completely. And they are just doing this because they're hopeful of a better, more alternative way of living. And then they're hit, they're smacked in the face with this reality that. Now we have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars that we didn't expect to spend because our builder made all these mistakes and screwed us over. And when I noticed this pattern, I realized I really wanted to um, really shine a light on it and bring and highlight it to show that the tiny house movement is not just a series of beautiful photos on Instagram. It's actually real people going through real issues. And this is one of the issues that they face. And when I was in Fresno, California, for a tiny house convention, I met uh, Lindsay and Eric Wood, who had a very significant um, story with their builder. Uh, do you want me to get into that or
1: yeah well I have I've, I've had Lindsay on the podcast. I was going to say like I've heard the same I've, I've heard this as well, and I'm glad to hear that that as a reporter, as a journalist you you've noticed this trend and, and done some reporting on it. But yeah, why don't you, you know, remind us about uh, Lindsay because it's been a while since she's been on the show and I'm sure there are a lot of people who definitely have never heard of her. Yeah,
0: definitely. So I can just sum it up quite quickly. I'm sure you can go listen to the other episode and Lindsay can probably explain it much better than I can. But Lindsay and Eric Wood basically went to a tiny house festival back in 2017 to find a builder for their tiny house. Um they ended up finding a builder called Alpine Tiny Homes. They were based in Utah and they Lindsay and Eric Wood decided to go with this company because they felt super comfortable with them. They felt like they had a great introductory conversation. Um, everything was in line. They were ready to go. They agreed on a $90,000 tiny home and they agreed that it would be built in 4 months. Uh Flash forward to seven months later, the tiny house still was not built. They were way over the time frame that they were given, and in the middle of that, at the seven month mark, Lindsay Wood received a nightmare phone call. She learned that Alpine Tiny Homes, the builder that she chose, was actually going out of business mid-build. So basically, she was left with a shell of a tiny house—basically wood beams and a frame on a trailer. And she ended up spending $60,000. And Lindsay said it best when she said, you know, you could buy an entire tiny home with full appliances, high-end amenities for $60,000. And they just got a shell. And so when they received this basically unfinished home, they realized that a lot of things were still missing, you know, They agreed on a rooftop deck. They agreed on a six-foot window. They agreed on a rock climbing wall on the exterior. They also even agreed on, like, finishing the interior, but all of it was missing. To make matters even worse, what was finished of this unfinished tiny house was broken or poorly done. So the hatch on the roof was too tall. So if they went under an underpass, it would just rip clean off and ruin their roof. The roof itself was not insulated properly. So when it rained, it poured inside the tiny house quite literally. And most dangerously and most significantly, they learned that the builder put the house on the wrong uh, tires and axle. So after two days of traveling on this trail on this uh trailer, they realized that it was the wrong size. So when they went to a new builder, the builder was like, Your tires and axles are bent from withstanding the weight of your home. And at the end of it all, you know, they spent an extra $40,000 to finish and fix the mistakes that their builder made. And unfortunately, that's just one story. There's a bunch of other stories that similar uh, situations have happened.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, have you seen any benefit or is it even worth, is it worth the effort for people to make Formal complaints, you know, such as like Better Business Bureau or other organizations, um, in hopes of kind of resolving the issues. Or, or how are what are you seeing people have for recourse?
0: Yeah. So in Lindsay Woods' case, they signed an as-is agreement, which basically said that you take this tiny house, and no matter what you find at the end of it, we're not responsible for it because you signed. It off as this is okay as is and Lindsay felt that she needed to sign that contract because she felt like they wouldn't give her the tiny house so she felt this broken incomplete tiny house is better than not having a tiny house at all so in the long run i think she you would have to ask her this directly i don't want to put words in her mouth but maybe she i think she might regret signing that as is agreement because she really can't follow through or sue the company for not finishing a tiny house and doing it incorrectly. I think that that's one case. I do see that the issue is quite significant because it goes to the local state and federal government levels, because, you know, this goes back to really, why is this happening? That's the real question. Why is this happening? And it's because there is no universal definition of a tiny home. Um, in the federal, state, or local government. Um, In the eyes of your local government, in most cases, tiny homes are just RVs. They are recreational vehicles. They are not meant to be lived in full time. So what does this mean? This means that builders are just popping up all over the country because they don't need to build to a certain higher standard. You know, I've seen builders that have built one tiny house, their tiny house, and then call themselves a business and a company. And they're like, we can build as many tiny houses as we can. Um, Since there is no federal oversight, this is possible. This is happening all over the U.S. And I think that is an issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And one nice thing is that that is slowly starting to change as there are some some certifications some inspections that you can get and also you know appendix q which Mm -hmm. does start to define what a tiny home is um is is helping yeah yeah
0: yeah so appendix q the issue with that is obviously that it only creates standards for tiny houses on foundation but i think the other part that people always forget also is that even though it's in the federal IRC building code, your state and local government still have to pass it. So, like, you can't just build your tiny house, and be like, oh, it's in the IRC, and then just expect that to be okay. Like, you still have to check beyond that right. to make sure that your local government has passed it. So, there's so many caveats, even with the. Effect. Yeah. There's also nobody forcing a
1: builder to mm-hmm. build to any specific san- standard because it's not like a single family home where you have to get a certificate of occupancy before you can move mm-hmm, in. Exactly. It's, it seems to me that, you know, people and nothing against people who are in the trades. Um, but, you know, you look at a tiny house and you kind of think that's so much easier to build. But in my opinion, it's actually a lot harder because you've got very complicated kind of interface between the house and the trailer and then you've got all these systems that you still have to fit in and have work correctly in a much smaller space. Yeah, no,
0: I I think that issue comes from early in the movement because I think this movement really started as a DIY movement. It was a way to build a home on your own for cheap. And in some ways the movement is really coming to terms with that. Like Is it still a DIY movement? It might not be anymore. And the fact that people are thinking that they can still do it on their own, they think it's easy, you know? And in reality, it's not. And there are builders who like say, oh, I am a construction worker. I build homes all the time, traditional homes. Yes, sure, some of those skills will carry over but that doesn't necessarily mean you know how to build a tiny home for the same reasons you just mentioned. So I think the tiny house movement has to come to terms with the fact that it might not, might not longer be may no longer be a DIY movement. And it's not an easy thing to do just on your own or that builders, any builder that has any construction experience can just build a tiny house because it's anyone can do it because it's not as easy as it looks.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I'm curious, so you mentioned the as-is agreement. I know that um, non-disclosure agreements have also... Um, they're something that are on way more people's radar after you know learning about the Me Too movement and just the way that non-disclosures were used to cover up abuses there. Have you heard of tiny house builders kind of forcing non-disclosure agreements?
0: Uh, as of right now, I have not heard of that. Have you heard of that? Have you heard builders using it? Um,
1: I'm not sure. I, I have a group of, of, I have an online community that I run and I, I I do have one member who has had some issues with their builder. And um, it would be interesting to hear if there have been any non nondiscript.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be fascinating. I would love to look into that more. Uh, I haven't heard personally, I haven't heard of NDAs being signed. I would say that if you're working with a builder that makes you sign an NDA upfront, I would say definitely be wary of that. Um, you know, push further, be like, why is this needed? Like what's going to happen in the process that I need to stay quiet about. But yeah, I would say just be wary if that situation does arise.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, if, if a good friend of yours said, Hey Frank, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy a tiny house. I'm going to hire a builder to build me a tiny house. Um, you know, what advice would you have?
0: The most important piece of advice I would have is definitely to do your research. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Do your research, do your research, and do your research even more. Um, You know, like I said earlier, there are hundreds of tiny house builders on the market right now. If you just do a quick Google search, so many will come up. Um, Some are more experienced, some are newer. Um, I think what you need to do is when you find a builder that you like, really do your research on that builder itself. If you're just looking through their website and reading their testimonials there, know that that's heavily curated. They're only using their positive reviews there. Um, So do your research beyond that. You know, there are a ton of tiny house Facebook groups, drop that builder's name into the, into one of those Facebook groups and be like, Hey guys, has anyone used this builder before? And if so, what was that process like? When you do that, You may get a ton of responses of people like, hey, that was super positive. That was super great. We had a great experience. You may get people who are like, I've never heard of that builder. No one's ever used that builder. I'd be hesitant to go ahead with that builder just because you want to trust this builder and you don't want to just choose a builder because they're new and cheap. Because you're going to get what you get. You're going to get what you paid for. Also, keep in mind that if it's too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Like Lindsay said to me that, you know, they agreed on a rooftop deck, a rock climbing wall, and high-end amenities for $90,000. She's like, in hindsight, that price tag didn't fit what we were asking for. Um, So think about that. Just remember that if you get a price tag that doesn't really make sense, but you're excited about it because it is cheaper than what you expected, you should really stop and question. Also. If you do all those things and you find out that this builder is really great and has really great people, I would also recommend going back to their website and finding a past customer. And even if it's a glowing review, I recommend reaching out to that past customer, find them on social media and ask them more in depth what their experience was like, because they may have left something out in their review. They may have been like, oh, it was great, but this one thing happened or this relationship with the builder may have been odd because of X, Y, and Z. And remember that building a relationship with your builder is important. You know, I've spoken to tiny house owners. Who we're like, this was a really great experience. However, my builder kind of left me out of the process. You know, they chose the color of the exterior of my home without even really talking to me about it. So when you choose a builder that you like and have great reviews, sit down with them and make sure the expectations are in line with each other, you know, make sure that you're going to be involved as much or as little as you want, because remember, this is a relationship. Um, So one, so I would just repeat that, you know, just make sure you do your research and make sure you're building a relationship that you and the builder are comfortable with.
1: Yeah, that's, that is great advice, especially like find a past customer, get in touch with them directly
0: exactly yeah i think that's my best piece of advice because you know they people have been through this before uh well actually one of my favorite things about the tiny house movement is that everybody is in it to help other people it i feel like it's such a tight-knit community Mm -hmm. because there hasn't everybody there's such a small amount of people who have been through the process and if you fall back on people who have gone through this process before especially with the builder that you're going to go with. The rewards from that is endless, limitless. I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah. I'm curious what advice you have, you know, so you you've given us great advice in terms of, you know, if you're starting from scratch finding a builder. What about somebody who's currently working with a builder and they're feeling like not going so well or, you know, they've had there've been some red flags, there have been some um there might not really be universal advice but but what would you say to somebody like that?
0: yeah i mean that situation is definitely tough we've all been in situations where we're like am i regretting the decision that i went with um i think it really starts with a conversation you know communication is always important and if possible do it face to face i know a lot of tiny house owners go with companies that aren't even in their state but if possible you know go face to face and be, and sit down with them and be like these are the issues i'm having these are the concerns i'm having um and then see if you guys can come to a solution together i mean of course there are situations where that you just won't see eye to eye on things that's when probably you have to make more drastic changes i'm not exactly sure you probably already signed a contract, so it might have been you can't get out of it. But I think it starts with a conversation and being as open as possible about it.
1: I'm curious if if there's particular kinds of contracts that you've seen get more abused than others. Like I know in the in the traditional construction world, there's kind of like two kinds of contracts where you can either say. I'm going to pay you for your time, plus the materials, plus a markup, or they're going to give you a flat price and say, like, we can build the house for this much and you only pay for any changes or, you know, other issues. Do you have a sense of, of which contract is, is more favorable for, you know, a, a customer in the tiny house, shopping for a tiny house?
0: Yeah, uh, I haven't actually dove into the contract world that much but from my perspective, it seems like most people are just getting flat prices um, and then paying a deposit upfront. Uh, something I mentioned in one of the articles I've written is that there was one company in Arkansas called Slabtown Customs, and they told their customers to pay $11,000 in deposits upfront. And then they just never followed through with the tiny, they never built them a tiny house. And then eight of those customers filed a lawsuit, and then went all the way up to the attorney general who is now pressing who filed a lawsuit against that builder. Wow. Of course, that is a drastic, drastic situation where you pay a deposit and then you get no product. But from my perspective, it seems like that's the norm that people are getting a flat rate and then just paying a deposit up front.
1: Right. And that's, that's great for you, for the customer, as long as they deliver. Uh, But if they run into financial troubles or, you know, they're starting to feel squeezed, then your house ends up suffering.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also say that, you know, the difference between a tiny house and a traditional house is that you rarely run into a surprise in a tiny house. Um, You know, like when you're renovating a home, you find a, you find mold, you find termites, you find other things that are jack up that price. A tiny house you're starting from scratch typically so you know exactly how much the materials will cost you know exactly how much the appliances will cost you know how much the labor would cost so i feel like there are no surprise costs in tiny houses so i feel like if you go with a more experienced builder they know from the start exactly how much this tiny house would cost so That's one of the benefits of going with an experienced builder that has built many tiny houses. If you go with a newer, uh, newer builder who isn't so comfortable or confident in how much this build will cost, that should be a red flag to you just because they probably haven't built as many tiny houses as you would like them to, to actually give you a firm cost upfront. Yeah.
1: What about, you know, I know that there are builders who listen to the show. Um, You know, what would be your advice to a tiny house builder for, you know, how to, how to do it right? How to do right by your customers? I mean, it should I guess? Just the question coming out of my mouth sounds kind of obvious, but I'm curious what you would say.
0: Well, I mean, I've spoken to many tiny house builders, and you know, their response is always like, "Hey, in any industry, you're going to have customers who are upset or unsatisfied with your work. Um, in any industry, this is the norm." However, I would say to that, you know, this is a new movement. It's an unregulated movement. In some ways, it's a lawless movement. When I spoke to Zach Giffen of Tiny House Nation about this, he called it the Wild West right now. And I think builders should keep that in mind, that they are being unregulated. And just because this is an unregulated movement, doesn't mean that you should be getting into this movement for a quick buck. You should keep in mind that these people, these customers are real people. This is not just a product that they're going to use once or twice. This is their home. People are going to live in this full time, hopefully, presumably for a few years or 10 plus. Um, they're going to be traveling sometimes with it. They're going to be traveling cross country with this tiny house. So I would say, You know, keep in mind that these are human people who are trying to start over in a new lifestyle and just do the human thing there, you know. Don't just do this for a quick buck, but keep in mind that this is not just a product, but it's actually a home.
1: Yeah, that's that's good advice. And if that doesn't appeal to them, then forget (laughs) them.
0: Forget them, exactly.
1: yeah I, th- I think that that you're onto something with it being a new movement, and there's there's this perception because there's there's been a lot of media that has kind of said, Look at this ten thousand dollar tiny house that you know look at this amazing place but you know if if you have a builder quoting you forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars, which is what you know most people I think the perception is changing, but I I do I have heard a lot of pushback to like, oh my God, why are these fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars? Like, it should be so much cheaper than that. But when you when you look at just the materials cost, you know, when you're when you're talking about a twenty-eight foot trailer that's gonna be six or seven thousand dollars right there and windows and doors and all the appliances, you know, for a twenty-eight foot tiny house, you're probably up around twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars just in materials. And so, if there's no cost for labor in the price of your build, you know there's a problem because that builder is not going to be really making any money. So why would they be doing this? Yeah, or they're going to just they're going to skimp on on the materials that they've told you that they're going to use.
0: Yeah. So I actually had this exact conversation with Zach Giffen from Tiny House Nation. He says that in some ways he blames himself and Tiny House Nation. Because at the start of the movement, this show was showing tiny houses that could be built for 10 dollars dollars $20,000. And the movement was categorized as this cheap alternative way of living. And now you're scrolling through Instagram, and you're seeing these beautiful photos of these tiny houses. And the tiny house you probably have in your mind, your dream tiny house, does not cost anywhere near that. It probably costs 80, 90 a hundred thousand dollars in some cases i mean i just talked to one builder who charges one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars starting price yeah for his tiny houses
1: is that david latimer oh i'm totally blanking on his name new 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 frontier tiny houses
0: yes yeah i think so i think so yes yeah so i think that when these customers these potential tiny house owners go to these builders like you said and they hear the actual price These builders, instead of losing the customer, they're going to cut corners. They're going to use cheaper materials. They're going to use less labor. And then they end up with really shoddy work. I think that's definitely something that's happening within the movement right now. Do you
1: have any tiny house-related stories that you're working on right now?
0: Yeah, so it actually goes right into this. I'm working on another story about the reality of the zoning laws. That tiny house owners face, I think it goes hand in hand with the uh, building codes. You know, I feel like another another dreamlike fantasy that people have when they're going through social media is that they're going to see the world, and they're going to park their tiny house wherever they want. They're going to park it in their backyard, in their neighbor's backyard. They're going to park on the side of the road. It's just going to be this freeing, beautiful lifestyle. But you know, in reality. That's just simply not the case whatsoever. Um, It's very limiting uh, where you can park your tiny house. The the reality is that many of these tiny house owners are going to park their homes in RV parks, in at campground, and if they are lucky enough to get a parking spot in a neighbor's backyard or something, um, that's going to come with a lot of difficulties and pushback from local government. I'm seeing a ton of tiny houses tiny house owners who are trying to live under the radar and the stress that comes with that you know just park it behind those bush in this family member's backyard and hopefully no neighbor reports you and hopefully no zoning officer sees it on from the front road um, and all of this comes back to the idea that there is no universal recognition or definition of what a tiny house is so in the eyes of the government they're just like what is this thing it's just an rv and in the eyes of the law you're not allowed to live in your rv full time so tiny house owner after tiny house owner are getting evicted being like you can't live in this situation full time you know i spoke to one tiny house owner who was living in her parents backyard in new hampshire And then one day she got a notice in the mail saying, what is this? Like you, you're over your property line. um, You have no plumbing and it's on wheels. This could be an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit. In addition to your family's home, but it's actually on wheels. So it's technically not. And so she tried to take it to local government and fight it and debate it. But ultimately, ultimately, they said, no, you cannot live in this full time. It's not a livable home. And she wasted, I think, I forgot exactly how much money she spent on it, but thousands of dollars on this tiny home that she can't live in. Uh, she ended up just moving out. And then her tiny house sat in her parents' backyard for months, which is strangely legal. You can have the tiny house in your yard. You just can't live in it. So there are just so many zoning laws that are strange across the U.S. And it's also important to keep in mind that it differs county to county, neighborhood to neighborhood. You know, there are some states that are super friendly to tiny houses and allow parking and in neighbors' backyards or at RV park. But that differs even within those states. There are some counties that are more lenient and then there are counties that are less lenient. So that's a long-winded way to say that I'm working on a story about uh, the zoning laws that tiny house owners face.
1: That sounds really interesting. I I look forward to to giving that a read. And it's so tricky, you know, as a tiny somebody who gives tiny house advice and you know has a website. I, I hear that so often from people. You know, where can I live in my tiny house legally? Or The other version of that question is, can I live in such and such town, you know, Wisconsin in my tiny house? And to answer that question requires research. You know, you're dealing with a local municipality's zoning bylaws and there's no shortcut to figuring it out. It's either you have to call the office or you have to read the code and figure it out. And and there can be so many paths to getting variances or to getting permission. Um, but you're right that people who are trying to be under the radar, that that does come with a a big, you know, its own stress. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are places in the U S where it's super easy to do Mm -hmm. and there are other places that are so strict. Um, you know, it really comes down to a zoning officer in that hometown, in that town. If there is a strict zoning officer that like just basically drives around and see who's doing following the rules and who's not, that's going to be impossible to live under the radar. And then there are some places that don't even have that position filled. And that's why it's easier to live under the radar in some places. But I guess that's also the beauty of the tiny house movement. You know, if you do get kicked out, you can just move it someplace else if you have the means to do so. Um, But yeah, like you said, it goes back to doing your research. Just like when you're doing your research for your builder, to do your research for finding the place to park your tiny house it all comes back to doing a lot of research before you really pull the trigger and say i'm gonna purchase a tiny house and live in it full-time
1: as a as a journalist are there any other um kind of larger trends that you're observing in the tiny house movement
0: yeah i think the other trend i'm Focusing on, we already touched upon it a bit, but the rising price of the tiny house movement. We also talked about how the movement, I think the movement started as a DIY, cheap alternative way to live. You know, a very cheap way and a very quick way to own property. But now as the movement continues to grow, that's no longer the reality. You now have to hire somebody And it's significantly more expensive than what you expected. You know, um, you can't really get the tiny house of your dreams for most people. Some people can for $20,000 anymore. That's just not the reality. The tiny house that you are dreaming of, most likely, is closer to $100,000 now. And I think the question there, what I want to explore some more is, is it worth it then? Is it st- is this movement still worth it if it's still, if it's now just as expensive to find a because I can find a probably a home, a traditional home in some parts of the country for a little more than hundred thousand, closer to two hundred thousand. So does it make sense to cause myself this much pain to downsize? Meanwhile, there's no more there's no longer that financial benefit. That's something I really want to explore. And that is a pattern that I am seeing some pushback from and you know i think also it's making people second guess buying a traditional tiny house on wheels i'm of the mindset that tiny house is a catch-all term uh so that also includes like people living in camper vans and living on sailboats and living in schoolies so i'm seeing that a lot of people are instead of choosing to pay that price of a traditional tiny house they're actually choosing to live in a different form of tiny house. They are choosing to live in a schoolie or a camper van. And I think that's why this summer we saw the extreme increase in this, the extreme boom of the RV movement and the camper van movement. I think that the extreme price of the tiny house is the cause of that, one of the causes of that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think that the prices are going up for the same exact houses. I think that. The houses have also changed a lot, um, just from 2012 when I built mine. You know, I was at 22 feet, which was the largest tiny house set of plans that I could find at the time, and that was on the bigger end. And now that would be that would be teeny tiny. Um, and so now you're seeing houses that have you know full size kitchen appliances, washer, you know, laundry, dishwashers. Um, sometimes bathtubs, sometimes steam showers. I know Lindsay's has a steam shower. Um, and those things all cost, you know, quite a bit of money when you go up in size, not to mention the, the increase in the trailer cost. And then just the fact that there's additional labor to do those things. You know, I don't, I don't think that the dream tiny house ever did cost $20,000 from a builder. You know, you could potentially build your own. And I know many people who, you know, all salvaged materials, built it themselves over the course of two or three years. And the the places can be stunning. But you also, in that $14,000 price tag, aren't taking account for your own time, you know, thousands of potentially thousands of hours of your own labor that you had to spend not working your job or other, you know, forms of, of income.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. But I would add that I feel like the people that are joining the movement today are not thinking of the tiny house that you built anymore. True. I think the definition of a tiny house has changed. I think in the beginning of the movement, it was just a cheap, livable place. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, look at everything we can pack into such a small space. Yeah. It's all about the luxury. And I think we are talking about the same house i really wish i remember this builder's name but yes he built this luxury home with a chef's kitchen two bedrooms and he's calling it the family the future family home um and i think that's what the future of the movement is really looking like it's looking how are we going to fit more people more different like different uh owners into such a small space so like how can we fit a family in a luxury tiny house? Yeah. How can we fit a, um, how can we make, how can we entice a person that makes $200,000 a year into a tiny house? Right. Because those people aren't interested in really saving money on housing. They're just interested in the lifestyle itself. Um, So I think before it was a movement for a very small niche group of people who wanted to live on the road, explore and minimize their life. And now it's kind of this completely different movement with some of those other people still in it. But I think it's a different movement now of people who have A, more money, and B, are interested in luxury. So I think that the price has gone up significantly because the definition of a tiny house and what people expect has changed dramatically over the years.
1: Yeah. I also find it, you know, there is one benefit, or there are many benefits, but one of the things that the, that the movable tiny house or tiny house on wheels still has going for it is that it does allow someone to invest all of their money into the house itself. Whereas when you're buying a, a house on a foundation, you're also having to buy the land that that is attached to. Now, of course, as you've pointed out, not having land does come with its own costs. You're either going to have to rent a spot, Um, And then you have to deal with the stress. But that is still one thing that I think that the tiny house on wheels does offer is that you can just buy the house.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would also add to that that a very small percentage of people um, that own tiny houses on wheels travel with their tiny house constantly. The larger percentage of people that own tiny houses on wheels are stationary ninety percent of the time so yes, you are just buying the house and not buying land, however, it I would say that tiny houses are traditional in the sense that they are you do need a piece of land to right. um, get that tiny house on
1: definitely definitely well, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests uh, is what are two or three resources so it could be books or people or YouTube channels or any resources um, that have helped you on your tiny house journey. So I suppose helped you in your reporting on the tiny house movement um, that you'd like to share with our listeners.
0: Yeah. uh, I don't think there's anything specific. I think the main thing that has helped me in my reporting is the um, Facebook groups, the tiny house Facebook groups. I'm sure you're a member of a bunch of them. There are some for like every state, some for just random counties in the US. Uh, There are a bunch of just catch all tiny house Facebook groups. And I think those are the best places to really get to know what the movement is like. You know, people post what their uh, tiny houses look like on the daily. They also ask each other a lot of questions. And I think that will Help your listeners who are tiny house owners that have questions or even people who are interested in learning more about the movement and don't know where to start or where to begin or what to do next. Those are really great resources because, like I said earlier, this movement is so small. And the best way to learn about it is from people who are already in it and who have done it. And I think those Facebook groups are the best places to get in contact with those people directly. I think that's the best place. And then also, this is going to sound strange, but TikTok has also been a really great source of contacts for me. Are you on TikTok? I ask everybody um, this because I'm obsessed with it.
1: I have looked at it once or twice, but no, I would guess the answer is really <laughs> no, I'm not on TikTok. I'll need to get a
0: lesson on that. Yeah. So there is a, <laughs> there is a whole growing movement on TikTok of tiny houses. That people just like show off their unusual living situations on TikTok. And they usually go viral on TikTok. It's camper life. People living in their camper vans are the most popular on TikTok. But there are a bunch of tiny house owners who also um, show what their lifestyle is like there. And it's very easy to contact people through TikTok. Usually people link to their Instagram account or put their email there. And it's just another way to really get in contact with people super easily and super fast.
1: Nice. That's great advice. I'm I'm looking forward to delving into Tiny House World on TikTok. Um do you have a minute for I recommend
0: TikTok in general?
1: Okay. <laughs> do you have a, a little while for one last question? I sure do. <laughs> All right. Well, my last question was, you know, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you that you were hoping to talk about or, or share with the listeners?
0: Um, I feel like the one thing I want to add that I might have touched upon um I wouldn't be doing my due diligence as a reporter if I also don't share the other side, the builder' side. you know we did reach out to alpine tiny houses that Lindsay would worked with. They did not mention why they went out of business, however, they did confirm that um, what happened is true, but the company said that you know the company. Was upset with how things turned out for them, but they didn't go into detail as to why or how. And I also want to say that you know the builders are humans as well, trying to make a living, and like I said earlier, also that you know in any industry there are people who are are upset, uh, who are feel unsatisfied with the product they are given. But yeah, this is a pattern that um, is happening within the movement that I think people need to talk about more and be aware of if they are looking into getting into the movement itself.
1: Well, Frank Alito, thank you so, so much for being a guest on the show. This was really informative and I I know that people are going to get a lot out of it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I learned a lot here too. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much to Frank Alito for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Frank's reporting at thetinyhouse.net slash 143. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 143. Once again, I'd like to wish you a happy new year and thank you for being a listener of the show. If you're not subscribed, download a podcast app like Overcast or CastBox, search for Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast and hit subscribe. That way you'll get the new episode every week when it launches on Friday morning. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.